A minimal creed, an ample science, and maximal faith. That is our aim. Welcome to Experiential Theology, the podcast where we investigate and talk about the relation between human experience and knowledge of God. Welcome back, everyone. We are together once again. This is uh, Ben and Juan. We're still talking about this book titled This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom by Martin Hagland. Today, we're going to be talking about chapter one, which deals with the concept of faith. Faith as in religious faith and also as in secular faith. With that in mind, uh, let's have Ben go over some of the definitions that we covered in the last episode so that we know exactly what we're talking about with this concept of faith. Go ahead, Ben. Okay. Yeah, so we want to talk about um, finitude, first of all. So our author, he defines it this way, and I'll just read the quote. He says, to be finite means primarily two things, to be dependent on others and to live in relation to death. I'm finite because I cannot maintain my life on my own and because I will die. So that's the definition of, of finitude. And uh, last time, I think we pointed out that it's interesting how these two things are tangled up together. Um, dependence on others and, and sort of living in the, in the light of death. He puts them together in this definition. And I think that's really clever. Uh, for instance, if you want to overcome death in a religious context, uh, generally speaking, you don't want to overcome dependence on others. Community is seen as a positive thing, but here they go together under finitude. Uh, so to, to overcome finitude involves two things. Okay, the second thing, the next thing we want to talk about is um, his, his contrast. And we want to make sure that we try to use his words here uh, rather than our, our, our normal use of the word religious or secular. So he says, quote, to have secular faith is to, is to be devoted to a life that will end, to be dedicated to projects that can fail or break down. So that's secular faith. Um, and then for religious faith, he says, uh, religious forms of faith are a devaluation of our finite lives as a lower form of being. So essentially we have, uh, we've got finitude and secular faith works with finitude and tries to make the most of being finite religious faith uh on in contrast tries to overcome being finite somehow and remember finitude involves those two parts so it's going to somehow have to overcome both thank you okay so what i like to do next is maybe uh talk about these things from a christian perspective i'm gonna bring paul into the table here so I'm going to read two scriptures, and then we'll see how they relate to what uh, Martin Haglund is talking about here. First Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. In this chapter, we read about faith. But we read about faith largely in the context of mourning. Mourning the death of loved ones and what that means for your faith, whether it be secular or religious. And here Paul talks about how he doesn't want the Thessalonians to grieve in a hopeless manner. We'll come back to that. 
Next, uh, from 1 Corinthians 15, 19, Paul says to them, If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So we need to talk about hope and hopelessness from the perspective of secular and from the perspective also of religious faith. So Paul says, and that's his perspective, that if we hope in Christ and our hope extends only to this life, then we are of all people most to be pitied. That's what Paul said, right? And so we'll have to revisit that and, and say if we want to agree, if we want to disagree, or if we want to do maybe both in some way. Yeah, I think that, I think this is an area that I have neglected in my Christian faith, where I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it, uh, honestly, until you're forced to. Um, because in my upbringing, Christian faith has a lot, has really been oriented towards death and dealing with death and overcoming death, overcoming finitude. It's been a, it's been a religious faith in the sense of religious that we defined above. And, uh, and so for that reason, I think, I think it's safe to say that I have, and people in my communities have, have really neglected taking a square look in at death in the face, taking a sober look at death in the face and living in light of death. And, I, and, you know, we go to Paul and we, we hear these verses and we're like, Oh, we don't want to grieve like people who don't have hope. Um, okay. So I guess I don't have to worry about it because I have hope <laughs> or, or, or we, we like, we don't even spend any time thinking about what it would mean uh, if they're, if the sort of the expected salvation we had coming never came, we don't even think about it. Like we, we haven't even explored that space um, out of terror, most likely. So uh, anyway, that's what we're going to try to do today. <laughs> thanks to our, thanks to our brave author. And I think it'll do us some good. Great. Well, yeah. Okay. So you want to go to the next one? Time and eternity. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I like the Einstein quote here. Right. So we want to, I have a quote here from Albert Einstein. And I think that this quote actually signifies um, like a religious impulse, surprisingly. So Einstein had a friend named uh, Michael Besso or Michelle Besso. And uh, this friend died before Einstein. And Einstein wrote a letter, uh, I think, to the widow or sister. I can't remember. And in this letter, he says, this is what he says. And it's really fascinating. He says, now he, that's Michael, uh, has departed from the strange world a little ahead of me. That signifies nothing. For those of us who believe in physics, the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubborn, stubbornly persistent illusion. So this is a super fascinating. Like Einstein here is dealing with the loss of his friend by appealing to his belief that the past, present, and future are, are equally real that other times are just like other places. And it's not really significant um, for somebody to have their entire life be past when others have their life still present and future. I don't know what kind of comfort this offered, but it's, but it, it is a bit of a religious impulse. And we're going to see today that people do change their concepts of time to try to deal with this loss and insulate themselves from loss. Yeah, I think this quote is really interesting because it illustrates how 
the way we define religious here, you could be a scientist, you could be an atheist or agnostic and still have a religious impulse, like you said. So you can be religious in the sense that you're trying to find a way to insulate yourself from death and suffering with recourse to science here, but it can be done in other ways. So I think this is really interesting. Okay, so our author, he's going to insist that that relationships literally take time. That without time, there's no relationship worth talking about. Uh, and there's no fellowship with other people worth talking about. So let's read a quote from our author, uh, Martin. He says, um, yeah, a relationship requires time to be what it is. Love is not something that can take place in an instant. Rather, love expresses a commitment to caring for another person across time. The temporality of such love is not merely an unavoidable condition. It is intrinsic to the positive qualities of being with the beloved. Um, so, so there's no, there's, if we're not coexisting and sharing a present moment, Having a having some future ahead of us, uh, then then there's no relationship. This is this is an essential part of it, and I, I'm really completely on board here. I I think that uh, as we're going to see, often theolog theologians are tempted to modify their concept of time, just like Einstein has done for other reasons, I guess. Uh, and I happen to think he's wrong for that matter. I've spent some time on this, <laughs> but but uh, the. We're, they're tempted to change their concept of time to insulate to insulate themselves from loss, but I think that the Christian faith and and the secular faith of this book is going to lean into the idea that we need to have time in order to have fellowship uh, with God, with one another, with whatever. Um, there's no way around it. Yeah. Great. So he makes a he makes a a distinction between what he calls living on, which means that we prolong our finite temporal life, which is which is something that he encourages us to do and he wants all people to do, especially people who have secular faith, right? And then being eternal. Being eternal meaning, well, what a lot of Christians, Muslims, etc., Buddhists even in some ways, uh, this idea that we are somehow absorbed in a timeless existence or in a paradise for an endless amount of time or in a period of timelessness. I mean, you can phrase this in different ways, but uh, this is important for his project here. So he believes a secular faith is all about living on, prolonging our temporal life and making this world better for the next generation. You're going to die, but before you die, try to make this world a better place for the people following you. That is how you express a commitment to your family, to the world, to the planet. Okay, so this leads us to our next section where we're going to talk about types of eternity. The idea that, so eternity, by eternity, so we've got living on which is this desire to just continue in this life with those that you love and all that that means. Uh, and then, and then being eternal, which is the idea that 
we're going to somehow transcend our finitude by overcoming death, by entering into this eternity. So what is eternity then? And you briefly said it already, but eternal, eternity could mean, and some people take it to mean uh, an unending present, sorry, an eternal present or an, or an eternal now, uh, or some kind of beatific vision where you find yourself in God's presence in a sort of glorious frozen state where past and present and future don't mean anything anymore um, once you've entered into it. And uh, yeah, and so, um, so, so that, that's, that's the sense in which the distinction between past, present, and future is collapsed and the and eternity that you enter into is, is an eternal now. It's, it's very static. And I think our author here, I think our author can has said and easily easily convinces me, and I've already believed this anyway. I guess so it didn't convince me, but that that kind of eternity is really not worth having. That there's no fellowship with with others. There's no fellowship with God or with loved ones or with enemies or reconciliation in a kind of timeless eternity. The fellowship, being what it is, requires some sort of time to 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 uh, to be to be and to, and to flourish. So the other kind of eternity is an unending time. What if we enter into, what if, what if we overcome death by entering into an unending time where we'll never die again? But, but time is still real where in, in our eternity, there's still a present and there's still a future and there's still a past. It's just that there's a lot of future ahead of us. In fact, an infinite amount of future ahead of us. Um, now come, let me just pause here for a second. Have you seen the good place, a uh, television show? It's a comedy. Yeah. I've seen a few episodes, maybe five episodes. So I know more or less what it's about and how it works and whatnot, but no, I haven't seen the entire seasons or the whole show. No. Okay. Well, I guess I can, let me just do a spoiler here. <laughs> spoiler alert. I think that's what you're supposed to do on a podcast. Um, <laughs> So in the last season, they end up they end up like in the in the actual good place after some confusion, and they're and then then time the clock starts going and they're just there for long periods of time. They do everything they ever wanted to do. This is a unending time type of eternity, and then it starts. To, then then they start to become discontent where they realize like they would actually rather have an end to their existence rather than just continue without end. And this, this television show, which is a very clever comedy, explores this idea that even in heaven, people would want there to be an exit, mm. amazingly, and, and explores this, this, this concept and this possibility. Well, I think in a way, our author does something similar here. He's, he argues that, he argues that um, if we had an endless life, a life where we could never lose it, a life that we can never lose, that would also be a meaningless life. It would just be as meaningless as a timeless life. Uh, in a timeless life, there's no fellowship, there's no relationships. And in an endless life, there's no possibility of loss. And in a nutshell, he thinks that it's the possibility of loss that gives meaning to the life that we actually have. So if you remove that possibility of loss, you've removed the meaning from the life. What do you think of that? Uh, I hear what he says. Uh, it makes sense to me. It seems very logical. Maybe he's right. I don't know if he's right. I, I don't know. But when, when reading this, I thought of Epictetus, the Roman Stoic philosopher, Stoic philosopher, 
And he talks about this and he, he, he rebukes his listeners saying, why are you so greedy? Must you be like the gods? Why can't you just be content with what the gods have given you? So in other words, you're giving a finite amount of time, enjoy it and be grateful. And when the time ends, depart graciously and glorify the gods with the way you exit from this life. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really don't know. It, it makes sense, I guess, but I'll find out when I find out, I guess. Right. Uh, let me read a quote. Um, he said, our author says, uh, to attain a, a state, sorry, so we're talking about unending time here. We're done talking about eternal present. I, I fully agree that that doesn't make any sense. Talking about unending time. So he says, to attain a peaceful state of eternity, you must be liberated from the risk of losing what you love. Were such a liberation possible, however, nothing would matter to you. You literally would not care. And I just wonder, is that really true? Like, would you really not care if you were finally secured from loss? Is, is loss and the possibility of loss the essence of caring? Uh, I don't know. There's a strong case that it is, but but it's it's kind of a difficult thought experiment to be really confident about that answer. And of course, he's hammering this, this home hard because this is the thesis of his book. That... But as a, as a religious person, I, just, I guess I've been imagining a future without loss for most of my life. And I, I can imagine it quite well. I've been imagining it all along. So how can I really believe that I literally would not care? Um, it's hard. It's hard to. It's hard to really swallow that, but it's worth considering. Yeah, I mean, like you said, specifically, we're talking about Christianity here. We're we're supposed to believe in a God that can do more than we can ask or imagine, right? At least that's that's the God Paul believed in, <laughs> right? So, I mean, I ask myself. I mean, why couldn't God do this? And then I also think about maybe when I've been on a nice vacation or something for two or three weeks and I don't have to worry about work. I don't have to worry about money because I have enough money for the whole vacation. It's really nice not worrying about anything. <laughs> so I don't know, we'll, we'll see. And also um, the idea of unending life, un unending time, um, what, he, what this author is saying here is that if we take away the possibility of loss, then we lose meaning. But who's to say that we actually lose the possibility of loss, right? Uh, I heard someone put it this way once, like, I've got two eyes and I could poke one of them out right now. This is a possibility. I could just take my finger and I could gouge out my eye. Or I could take a pencil and stab my eye. It's never going to happen, but it's possible. And it's still meaningful to me to have two eyes. Um, I'm never going to intentionally damage my eyes. And, and so, and so maybe there, maybe, maybe the concept of an unending time is still compatible with potential harm. Um, even if the actual harm has been removed through say like a transformation to the character of God, where we no longer want to harm one another, not that it's impossible, but that we would never do it. Um, what if, what if the kingdom of heaven 
in the eternal life sense of it, um, in the unending time sense of it, is is a is a is a kingdom of vulnerable people who just happen to treat each other well. That would still be meaningful. Um, I think. But if it was like a, a large padded room in which nobody could hurt themselves, it's more of an insane and it's more of an asylum kind of feel. <laughs> then, then yeah, that would be kind of meaningless. So it's an interesting uh, angle there too. And also, I think uh, he is presupposing, uh, I guess, a very traditional outlook on eternal life. So we have eternal life and we still have these physical bodies. And so he's having a really hard time envisioning how this could all work. But it could be argued that Paul believed that in the resurrection, we're going to have not these bodies of flesh and blood, but spiritual bodies that have an entirely new constitution that are able to just live in a whole new plane of existence Again, of course, I think he would say that's ridiculous, but, but I mean, that's, that's where Paul is coming from. He is well aware that our physical life here is not sustainable and that if we are to have some kind of eternal life or fellowship with God, then bodies of a new sort will be needed. Yeah, it just came to my mind. Okay, yeah. So just to summarize this little section that we've been talking about, um, Unending time is really about being secure from loss because it will end as soon as you lose your life for this, as soon as you get kicked off the island, so to speak. Um, and in religious hope, uh, it's a religious hope in the sense that it, we seek to overcome loss and the risk of loss. So when we're hoping for unending time, an eternity of unending time, we're hoping for, what we're really hoping for is, is somehow to be, to have our losses overcome and to be secure from losses uh, indefinitely so i just i thought i'd read paul in first corinthians 15 54 and following here because this seems to be something similarized on his mind and then i'll just say something about it paul says um when this perishable perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality then the saying that is written will be fulfilled death has been swallowed up in victory where O death is your victory where O death is your sting the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this just occurred to me a few minutes ago. Um, it seems like our author is saying the sting of death is the loss of fellowship or the loss of, of time uh, or some kind of loss. Okay, Paul's saying here that the sting of death is sin, and the gospel that he's proclaiming is this defeat of sin through the transformation of people into the character of the man, Jesus Christ. So, when Paul's saying death is overcome and victory, um, it's really talking about the, how sin is overcome, which is really talking about how how all of our ways of mistreating one another is overcome by a transformation to the character of God and a forgiveness, which is a little bit different than, um, than just a revision of the laws of nature so that sticks no and stones no longer break bones when they are used as weapons. <laughs> We're talking about a change in the actors, 
not a change in the arena. Um, but anyway, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with our author. I, I'm just trying to put these two things side by side. Yeah. Great. Okay, so moving forward, it seems like what we need are approaches to faith, approaches to living the face loss directly. What can we say about this? Yeah, so, so our author has just been criticizing unending time as eternal life because it's really about invulnerability, removing vulnerability. Um, and he says, uh, the author says, quote, the point is not to overcome this vulnerability, but to recognize that it is an essential part of why our lives matter and why we care. And I think I agree. Like, I think that the, I think that the good news of the New Testament, of the Christian faith, is a gospel of vulnerability. It's about Jesus Christ and him crucified. It doesn't get more vulnerable than that. Um, yeah, we talked recently a couple episodes, or maybe last episode about the theology of the cross versus the theology of triumph, right? Mm -hmm. So the theology of triumph is in fact a theology of invulnerability that says something like, because of what Christ has done, now we're invulnerable to losses and defeat. Um, a theology of the cross is an invitation to, to embrace vulnerability in a, in a terrifying way, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. And the, and to recognize that the power of God is made manifest in human vulnerability, which is really a remarkable and confusing thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, there are many people that manage to go through life making themselves invulnerable to pain, but in doing so, they also don't experience the depths of joy, the depths of love, of course, also the depth of heartbreak and loss. So it's, it's definitely a trade-off, but uh, yeah, it seems clear to me, even on a plain human level, that vulnerability is essential for us to experience life at its highest but we have to know also that this means that we can also experience the deepest of losses and that's just the price of human existence yeah i think in the turn in our author's language what you're saying is something like that the vulnerability is a real source of meaning for life that we can so a, a theology of triumph will say, if you're vulnerable, if you're not confident of your salvation, if you're not assured of unending time and eternal life, what's the point? Because <laughs> you're, um, and it, but it it fails to see that the treasures of the Christian faith are hidden in this vulnerability, and that the meaning of our life is hidden in vulnerability. And our author. Our, of this book, Secular Faith, seems to agree with that. that this, it's this vulnerability that gives meaning to our lives or, or could potentially give meaning to our lives. We have to select the meaning for ourselves. Um, 
but from a, from the theology of triumph perspective, if we read those verses at the beginning that we read, I'll read one of them again. Um, yeah, so First Thessalonians four thirteen. Think, read, like, listen to this from the perspective of a theology of triumph. It says, "We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have not who have no hope." From a theology of triumph perspective, it's sort of like only the losers. <laughs> uh, if if you just die, you're it's over. Um, it does, nothing makes sense. Vulnerability doesn't make sense from the perspective of a theology of triumph. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and I mean there are other resources that we can use from the Apostle Paul. For example, I think in Second Corinthians he talks about how. It is possible paradoxically to experience death daily, right? And to be renewed inwardly to what else he says. He lists a number of uh, experiences that are paradoxical to be sorrowful yet joyful. Uh, yeah, basically to be jars of clay that are cracked perhaps, but within have this treasure, which is Jesus. So death is a work in the apostle Paul, right? He says, but so is the life of Jesus that he has with him at all times. So I think that's the model that we want to follow. Yeah. 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 I didn't read that verse to recommend a theology of triumph. I just, I don't know. I, I know. Just, just saying how it could be used by the theology of triumph. Yeah. And I think that's 95% <laughs> of the time how it is used. Yeah. Like, ah, oh, no, no, don't worry. So and so died. But I mean, seriously, they're probably with Christ right now. And Paul said it is better to die and be with Christ anyway. So, I mean, we should be happy, actually. Yeah. People do that all the time, unfortunately. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So he says the most fundamental form of secular faith is the faith that life is worth living, which is intrinsic to all forms of care. It's, yeah, it's, it's just a real sense that this life matters, not instrumentally in the sense that it matters because the next life depends on it. And so, and the next life matters a lot. So therefore this life matters in order to set you up for the next one. That's a religious perspective in the terms, in, mm -hmm. in terms of the definition of religious we're using today. Uh, but from the secular perspective, this life matters, period. It matters. Um, I think this is true. The question is, what are you going to do with this life? Uh, and and uh, and here, in the in the shadow of of death, like living in the in finitude, where we're finite people, where we depend on others, and where we we face death. Um, we have a whole menu of possible meanings that we could assign to our life. And one of those meetings, meanings is just to say, I think this is in wisdom two or three in the Apocrypha. Um, something along the lines of might makes right. Whatever, whoever is strong, they're the ones that are right. Right is whoever, whoever can win by means of strength. Another source, another way, another approach to meaning is to say, let's just eat and drink because tomorrow we're going to die. Let's just enjoy 
Um, and another approach to meaning, which this author is recommending, is to say that life is fragile and it's an opportunity to care for one another and for that care to have meaning and value. To be, and and I think that that's, that comports with the with with the gospel, honestly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, let's talk about this next section here on our notes. So, valuing this life. So, again, the title of the book is "This Life," right? How? can we help people see this life as more valuable? It's a challenge for religious leaders. It's also a challenge for atheists and philosophers who wanna convince people to care more about this life. They have different obstacles, but this is ultimately what they both wanna do. Secular faith, he says, we need to have secular faith in the irreplaceable value of a life that is bound to death. So again, this life is finite, it is short, therefore it is infinitely valuable. That's where we wanna go. We don't wanna say, therefore it doesn't even matter, actually. I mean, who cares? We die and that's it. Or we die and then we're transformed and we live forever. We really wanna move in a direction that values this life. That's what we wanna do. And for me personally, I think, uh, that is something that I think about quite a bit in, in my reading and study of theology. Uh, I've pursued all kinds of questions, but I feel like I got pretty good answers now. But this is the one question in which I feel like I'm still wrestling with. Okay, so I don't really have to worry about eternity. Check. I don't have to worry about this other thing. Check. But actually, I do have to worry about this. How can I personally uh be someone who cares more about this life because of my christian faith and not less which tends to be uh the uh, experience i think for most christians that they affirm eternity eternal life and then almost ad automatically they they lessen the importance of the life that we live now in common with our neighbors, religious or not. Yeah, so what what are we gonna say about this following this life? So yeah, by definition, I'll read a quote. He says, um, to have religious faith is to disown our secular faith in the fragile form of life. Religious faith holds that our ultimate aim should be to transcend the finitude we share. Remember, finitude is living in light of death and depending on one another. As a consequence, this life is devalued and comes to be seen as a transitional state of being from which we ought to be saved. In contrast, I seek to show what it means to own our secular faith and to engage the transformative possibilities that are opened up by acknowledging our commitment to our only life. Yeah. So again, he talks about how it is very possible to devalue this life. I think uh, by and large, this is what happens with religious people of different faiths. I mean, you could even be, again, an atheist, agnostic, and use science or some 
kind of rationalist uh, scheme to justify why you don't have to mourn or why you don't have to suffer and experience loss, like the unenlightened people around you. So this error of devaluing life can happen not just to religious people, but even to people who don't profess any religious beliefs, but do seek to protect themselves from the loss of loved ones. Okay, so that leads us to our, our next section where we're going to talk about mourning. And uh, this was one of the verses that we read earlier. It was about mourning as well. Uh, yeah, so our author says that there's one thing that a secular form of life never will be able to promise, an eternal life or an eternal state of being. What this means is that um, secular faith, as all Christians know, doesn't have, can't go to a funeral and preach that the one that we just lost is with the Lord. That can't be part of the way to process the death. Mm -hmm. Now, death is always happening. Um, we hide it. We try to keep it out of sight. But we know people. You have grandparents. Young people have accidents or sicknesses still. And death is around us all the time. Um, and especially present now in a worldwide pandemic. Um, but even before then, it was still present, omnipresent. You just need to look and you'll be able to see it. So, so how do we look squarely in the, how do we look squarely at this? How do we mourn death appropriately? Um, and uh, anyway, for, on the secular perspective, one thing we can't do is just say, guess what? This death isn't a big deal because it's just a transition into another life. Um, yeah, we can't do that. So, I mean, we do do that as Christians, uh, but but that's not a secular option. So this what what I meant what I meant to say. Sorry, maybe you can jump in. Is, is that Christians are often assuming that people who are not Christians or people who are not religious have nothing good to say at a funeral, and this this book really blows that away because he's he's got a very um, profound sense of how a secular faith can make sense of death and make sense of mourning. Yeah, I also like how he uh, <clears throat> he dialogues with uh, certain theologians and writers. He talks about C.S. Lewis. He talks about Martin Luther and Augustine, I believe. Yes, yeah. So he interacts with their experiences of mourning and death, how these were people who are learned they know what the Christian faith says. They profess these things, but nevertheless, in their experience of loss, they were just unable to just cope with the death of their loved ones in the way that Paul recommends. Meaning that they could not be, they could not be comforted by just being told that, well, now they're in a better place or now they're with God. Intellectually, maybe yes, they agree, but emotionally, inwardly, it's not something that they truly accepted. And of course, obviously they have to surrender it to God, but it's not something that they could truly accept. So this idea of mourning is, is very powerful. Again, a lot of people have experienced death some of them tragic, 
And some people never recover from those experiences. It's always there. It's always there. It uh, also reminds me uh, in the Old Testament, I think it's Jacob, right? When, when he quote unquote lost Joseph, he thought that, you know, he was murdered by a, a beast of some sort, but actually he was sold into slavery into, to Egypt and he was gone for many years. But somehow he never really sees mourning. He, he was just inconsolable over the loss of his favorite son. And it just so happened that he actually didn't lose him in the way that he thought. But yeah, I mean, mourning the loss of our loved ones, it's, uh, it really is a, a test of your faith. And I mean that in the sense that it will, re it will reveal how much you love your loved ones and to what extent maybe your most cherished beliefs help you or don't help you. Yeah. Yeah, he, he says, um, a religious faith in eternity cannot add anything to the dignity and pathos of mourning. It can only subtract from the mourning by diminishing the sense of loss. So what I think he's saying here is that if you are at a funeral or if you're leading a funeral, which I've never had to do, <laughs> maybe one day, um, mm -hmm. one of the things you might do to try to, to, to handle it is to try to diminish the loss, to try to let people know that this is not as bad as it feels by telling a story about eternal life and so on. And uh, this author, he calls that out as diminishing the dignity and the pathos of the morning. He recommends um, giving the death the dignity that it deserves, giving the, the loss the magnitude that it deserves, that the feelings of loss are accurate and real. Um, that something of great value has been lost, not something of instrumental value that's finally reached its purpose. Let me add something else. He says earlier, he talks about how religious people, or he think he's talking about Charles Taylor, who I'm not really familiar with. Um, he talks about how what we seek is a fulfillment of a life that we want to fulfill the life. And then we're ready to die. Once we've done everything we intended to do, once we've reached our goals or whatever. And this author says, in secular faith, you will never reach a point where you're ready to pass on with your life fulfilled. Life being what it is and relationships being what they are and time being what it is, you will have, if you have a real love and care for one another, you will have a commitment to living on. You'll have a desire to live on. And that desire will be frustrated when you do not live on or when they do not live on. That's what, that's how relationships work. That's what in his view um that's the reality of the situation and so in order to sort of soften the blow um we were actually perhaps not doing justice to what's happening yeah i think it's very difficult to hold religious convictions and now fall into this trap 
especially because many times mourners themselves want to hear this um, biblical reminder, shall we say. Many times mourners do want to hear that their loved one is in a better place, that they're not suffering anymore, that as tragic as their life may have been, they no longer have to suffer. So it is difficult, but I think I'm going to agree and say that every life that is lost is irreplaceable. It's of infinite value. And we have to be very careful how we, how we speak to people undergoing this experience. Yeah, we can't assume that our theory will fit their reality. So yeah. Uh, one thing that also came to mind as we were talking about this is the famous shortest verse of the Bible, apparently, which is Jesus wept. <laughs> like, well, when did he weep? This it's in the Gospel of John, um, which is uh, what can I say about it? It's different than the other gospels. It's perhaps written more as a theology and narrative form rather than a um, narrative of what actually happened necessarily. It's, it's written later than the other ones. It's an interpretation of the life of Jesus. It's a retelling. Um, it doesn't make an effort to match the other gospels really at all, as far as I know. Anyway, all that said, in the gospel of John, the author sees fit to have Jesus have a friend die, wait four days, and then go to see him. Everybody's expecting him to have prevented this. And when he arrives, he weeps. And then he performs a miracle and raises his, his dead friend back to life in this narrative. So what was he crying for? <laughs> what was he crying for? I don't know. Maybe Jesus had secular faith here, um, <laughs> according to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John puts secular faith on the, on the person of Jesus at the, at the moment of mourning. So what do you know? Yeah, a lot of again. I mean, in, in the synoptic gospels, right, you see Jesus undergoing a lot of emotional and spiritual suffering before the cross, but not in the gospel of John. He's just chilling like, hey, no, no problem. I got this. But yeah, like you mentioned, he, he does weep over Lazarus, I believe. Yes. And people try to explain that. Wow. I remember one time I read a person that said that he cried for himself, not for Lazarus, because he saw in the death of Lazarus uh, a prefiguring of his upcoming death or whatnot. I don't know. I think Jesus had secular faith. That's what I'm going with from now on. So. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, well, let's 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 end the episode with your concluding sentence here that you wrote, which I thought was quite clever. Let's share with the world. Okay. Okay. So, uh, from our Christian perspective, like, or the two perspectives of ours that are both Christian perspectives, what do we got to say about this, uh, about, about secular faith and mourning? And, and I think that, uh, I think this is the way I want to describe it because a lot of what this book is saying is ringing true for me, but what Paul was saying at the beginning of our episode, about hope also like rings true for me. I don't know how to construct a Christianity that doesn't involve hope. That's just focused purely on 
secular faith. And yet I recognize in this description of secular faith, a great deal of what I value in Christianity. So that's a confusing thing. So here's my attempted synthesis. In Romans 5, 5, Paul says something along the lines that hope does not disappoint us because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. And so this hope, the evidence for the hope that we have is the love of God poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But I would say that the Spirit is manifest in secular faith. I think that we can safely say, I think we can safely say that the Spirit of Jesus at work in the world today looks like secular faith, as described in this book largely. So we would expect, uh, I would expect on my theology for, for, people to be acting in a way that looks a lot like secular faith if they're led by the spirit of Jesus. Um, on the other hand, in the New Testament, the spirit serves as evidence for our hope. The spirit serves as evidence that there is hope. Um, so the evidence of the spirit is secular faith, and the hope given by this evidence is a hope that does not devalue the present. So it's a secular hope, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> it's certainly not a religious hope in the sense that we've described here because a religious hope is a religious means devaluing the present in the context of this book. Yeah. So I think we have, I think we have the material in a theology of the Holy spirit based on Romans five, five for a secular hope. Okay, great. That sounds amazing. Well, thank you, Ben. And thank you everyone for listening to this episode. Uh, come back next week. And we will talk some more. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Experiential Theology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Please rate the podcast in whatever platform you use and share it with whomever you think would enjoy our subject here. You could also leave a voice message by going to anchor.fm backslash experiential theology.